You're listening to the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. This is Drive Time with Travis Wingfield. Back to throw Tua, looking. Flips it down the wide open! <laughs> Touchdown, Tyreek Hill! Unbelievable! Just flew by him for a second time. Tua knew where he was going right away. How the hit is that, little man? I really hope you soon jump on his bandwagon. Waddle, waddle. Tua, shotgun, back to throw, looking, steps up, fires, touchdown, the guy! It's Waddle! His sixth touchdown, sixth touchdown pass touchdown of, of the day. Drive time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolphins? And welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield. And on today's show, we are recapping, well, a lot. The 2023 NFL Draft as a whole, we'll look at the areas the Dolphins on paper improved this offseason. We'll see what the masses are saying about our four new Miami Dolphins. I'll stop by the film room once again to give you the omissions from the original film study on these guys now that I had the entire weekend to take a look under the hood, plus my top draft notes and top rosters heading into the summer. All of that and more from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is... The Drive Time Podcast. So if you haven't listened to the draft episode, which I'm not sure there's a single person here who would have skipped those and come straight to this one, but just in case, I just want to go ahead and detail a few extra notes from watching not just two or three games from these guys, but getting into six plus games and seeing what they really offer with a real mind of just watching that player and watching their potential fit here with the Miami Dolphins. So real quick, just a brief omission period on each of the four draft picks. And we start in the second round with cornerback Cam Smith and watching more and more of his tape. I think maybe the best trait of all that I like for him is that he keeps your defensive playbook wide open. What I mean by that, there are reps of him doing a little bit of everything on that South Carolina tape. The pick he had against Clemson last year, he's 10 yards off in the slot, and they try to get a takeoff from that position, which is a very common route in 2023. He squats on it in a way that limits the break off the top of the route by playing underneath and kind of being ready to trigger downhill but it allows him to also flip his hips and run vertically. And on this rep, when you watch just the broadcast version, you see the ball go up and then Smith is tracking it like a wide receiver. And then the other actual wide receiver appears in frame trying to get back in phase, but he can't do it. And so Smith winds up running down this deep shot for an easy INT. I think that rep tells you all you need to know about his game, his confidence, the trust he has and what he sees that allows him to play this way where he can funnel down and challenge the short game without having to sacrifice the deep portion of the field because he can flip his hips and take off in an instant, that 10 split speed, right? He has plenty adequate long speed. And then of course the length helps him disrupt the catch point if he is behind a little bit or falls out of phase a little bit. Then in the running game, you know, when I first watched his tape, I thought this is a guy that doesn't really love to go make hits. But the more you watch, the same thing I love about his general approach to the game is what makes him effective here. Understanding of angles, where he is on the field, and spatial awareness. You can just see the football IQ with this player. 
And the trait that almost always comes with that and, and does here is the effort. Throw the ball to the other side of the field and you'll see him take off and get his angle to where he has to be just in case the play breaks out and goes for a big gain. He wants to be there to prevent the long touchdown. And that awareness of, of where he is and the way he plays the football. In fact, there's a three-play sequence in the Vanderbilt game. One, he strings out an outside run and makes the play by setting the edge and coming back inside to make the tackle. Number two, the next play, is an option play where he just disrupts the mesh point and kind of stays in a perfect position to defend both the quarterback and running back, and it forces the quarterback to tuck it and turn up right into his help. Just delay that pitch for as long as you possibly can. And this third one here, it goes back to the previous trait I mentioned where he can really play back the football, is there's a one-on-one pass play to the field where he's on the wide side of the field, right? A takeoff route to the perimeter, and you see him mirror really good mirror uh, technique, wait for the receiver to engage the contact, which he then reciprocates, which means it's not a defensive pass interference. And here's the best part. And this is what we didn't get the last time around. We took a cornerback very high in the draft is he locates the football before making his leap or before going into the man. And that's going to prevent so many defensive pass interference calls that were flagged on the previous high draft pick at cornerback here for the Miami Dolphins. I can't tell you how much I love that quality because all year last year, all those zero looks, the man coverage, so much urgency uh, put on these cornerbacks in coverage. They got flagged so frequently because they panicked and just played through the man. And you you have almost no chance of making a play in that regard. But Cam Smith typically finds the ball and plays the ball opposed to playing through his man. This tape is fantastic. And by the way, I've got Brett Coleman scheduled for the podcast on Friday this week. And he just texted me, Cam Smith with about eight greater than signs. That's all he said. He, he loves Cam Smith's tape. We'll talk about that more on Friday. Devon A-Chain. This is something I think we probably could just cover about this team with a blanket statement and call it good. But man, there is a certain type of player they've clearly prioritized down here in South Florida, and it revolves around the player's will and determination. You see that on A-Chain's tape with regularity. Yeah, he's 180 pounds. He's probably not pushing the pile 10 yards down the field on any given play. But anyone who just sees the weight and tells you this guy's not going to drop his pads and run tough and run through tackles is simply not watching the tape, which <laughs> I've seen that take from you know a couple of, couple of guys that cover the team that clearly don't watch the tape. This dude finishes runs. He plays on 100 at all times. And this is another part of the makeup that the Dolphins have clearly demonstrated that they love. He's smart. Gosh, if there are three wrong decisions to make or gaps to hit and just one correct one, you typically find A-Chain finding the ladder. And he's fast. He does it quickly. Just incredibly adept at hitting small creases at full speed. And we know what happens when you've got nearly 4-2 speed and you do that. You know what else those two things play into? Pass protection. There are all kinds of examples of him getting his block executed. Even when giving up 60, 70 pounds to some of these top edge rushers in the SEC, it ain't always pretty, but it's usually effective. And a lot of that has to do with his effort and will to do that. Elijah Higgins, I might be having the most fun watching Higgins so far from this class. I referenced it in the post-selection breakdown podcast, but everything this guy does operates through his strength. Core, upper body, lower body. He's just a brick house in terms of the way he uses that size to his advantage. You pair it really with really, really good route running. And man, I can see the ceiling for him being, you know, fulfilling multiple roles from both wide receiver and tight end perspectives. And I wrap that phrase, you know, wide receiver and tight end in air quotes because I think gone are the days of just painting a player with some broad brush and in is the idea 
of filling out specific roles on your team. Like whether it's blocking from an inline position or cracking from a plus split or running from the slot, you know, vertically down the field to open up that too high shell. He's got a lot of tools on his proverbial belt, but man, the way he controls DBs and the physicality aspect of his matchups, I mentioned this in the ways that he fights off reroutes and positions himself for contested balls. You see it in the running game too. And, you know, I think about what he could potentially add as a run blocker, you know, off the edge and some of the stuff that we saw receivers doing on this offense a year ago. I see a lot of that in Higgins games as it projects towards a potential role here in the offense uh, down the line. Then Ryan Hayes, you go back and find the senior bowl reps for all the guys that played in that game. I think that's where you can really see where Hayes projects at the next level. The one-on-ones were a bit of a learning experience for Hayes in day one. Like it wasn't good, but they always talk about guys that improve throughout the week. And that's what you saw from Hayes. Some of those bigger, heavy handed rushers were just bull rushing him and dropping their weight on a guy that was, you know, coming into that game about 300 pounds and he would give up some ground. He would get knocked back a little bit. But then he started to make an adjustment, whether it was getting a deeper drop or widening his base or striking earlier or just finding different, you know, contact points to put his weight on, you know, more so than somewhere else. And all of a sudden, these bull rushers are getting stonewalled right at the point. Now, as for the run blocking aspect of his game, didn't take longer than Monday or was it Tuesday, the first day of practice for him to to get that picked up. It was the same as his Michigan tape, man. It was dominant. He is outstanding at the point of attack. And surprise, surprise, he fires off the ball and shortens the runway of his men significantly. Something you see plenty in this offense down here in Ma'ama. Everybody's on the roster is going to compete, right? So, you know, hopefully we get Teron Armstead at left tackle for 17 games. And Austin Jackson shows you the growth we all saw last camp, but then didn't get a chance to see because of the early injury and then a re-injury when he came back. And in this case, maybe you can see, you know, Hayes coming off the bench in some heavy packages, some six offensive line packages, you know, if he shows you that growth and, and makes his way through camp and, and earns a spot on the roster, I can see him potentially having a role in that regard because of the way he plays the run and widens that edge in the instance that you do go with a heavy six offensive lineman package. Just kind of thinking about the future, what that might look like. Obviously, lots of competition in that room, so we'll see who winds up filling out that role. But watching his senior bowl reps and the way he attacks those guys one-on-one, I really like the way he blocks off the edge in the ground game, man. Lots of like from this entire class. How about what the pundits are saying you know, nationwide? I went around the web and dug up some draft takes from some of the big names in the industry. Here's what Kuiper had to say you know, Mel Kuyper. Cornerback Cam Smith excelled in zone coverage in college, and he locks down SEC wideouts. Running back Devon A-Chain could be one of the steals of the draft. He should be on preseason rookie of the year watch list. A-Chain is super fast and has the ability to, in the past game, what's not to like? Ryan Hayes is my 15th ranked offensive tackle. I was surprised he lasted that late. His 2022 tape is very solid. Warren Sharp of Sharp Football graded the Dolphins with the eighth best draft in the draft. Uh, eighth best value, I should say. That's a weird way to put that. This is a metric that he devised based on draft capital over expectation. Now, does that mean anything? No, because you're working off of a consensus big board from all the major players, and that doesn't really reflect how NFL teams think, and who cares if you're doing better than the consensus media boards. But then, where the players went based on their pre-draft ranking, the Dolphins got value that way. So it's not bad when you consider that. I mean, it's just one way of looking at this thing, especially when you consider that teams one through seven on his list all had seven or more picks. And Miami had, of course, just the four. 
So real quick, another Brett Coleman note. I got a different text from him earlier over the weekend that said, of course the Dolphins took A-Chain. He texted me that right when they had that draft pick come through. What a cheat code he wrote me. Again, he'll be doing the podcast later on this week. And speaking of future podcasts, you guys know my boy Emery Hunt from CBS Sports HQ is going to come on for his annual spot, taking a look at all the UDFAs that he thinks have the best chance to make an impact on this year's roster. Remember, last year I asked for a name. He goes, Kohu. I was like, yeah, yeah, Cater Kohu, he told me. So that was all I needed to know. He then broke it down for us, but he was he was very indignant on the selection of Cater Kohu, who I think was the Dolphins' best rookie in general last year. Pretty, I mean, obviously he was. Um, speaking of, we have reports, not official signings, but reports of UDFAs who will be joining the Miami Dolphins. They are quarterback James Blackman from Arkansas State. You might recall him from his days at Florida State. Running back Chris Brooks from BYU. A couple of wide receivers, Daywood Davis from Western Kentucky and Chris Coleman from Cal Poly. I'll be honest with you guys, I have not fired up the Hilltoppers nor the Cal Poly tape. I also have not watched tight end Julian Hill out of Campbell. Uh, Offensive tackle Jared Horst from Michigan State. He's just a a mean dude on the offensive line. Uh, Alex Jensen from South Dakota State, another offensive tackle. Uh, A guard, DJ Scaife, I think is how you say it, from Miami. A center, Aluma Olave from... Uh, where is he from? I didn't get his college on here. Defensive tackle Brandon Peely from USC, who I think has a chance to really uh, make not just an impact on making the football team, potentially eating up some snaps on the nose tackle. Defensive tackle Anthony Montevallo from UCF. Uh, defensive lineman Randy Charlton from Mississippi State, almost uh, Norm Charlton and Randy Johnson put together. An edge Garrett Nelson from Nebraska. We talked about him on the Visits podcast a couple weeks ago. An edge from Miami, Mitchell Agade. Uh, another edge, Ezekiel Vanderberg from Illinois State. He is highly intriguing. I'm ex- looking forward to diving into his tape. Linebacker, Aubrey Miller from Jackson State. Cornerback, Kedron Smith from Kentucky. Free safety, Ethan Bonner from, safe- from Stanford. He is electric. Safety, Bennett Williams from Oregon. And Matt Turk's son, Michael Turk, the punter from Oklahoma. That's how you know you're getting old, man. <laughs> A player that you know, that you remember watching very distinctly. His son is now on the football team. Uh, before our first break, new jersey numbers. Braxton Berrios gets the zero. That's going to look cool on him. Chosen uh, has the former number three of Will uh, Fuller. I almost said Will Anderson. Will Fuller and Josh Rosen. Hopefully Chosen can make that more of a chosen number here in 2023. Cater Kohu goes to four, which was my high school basketball and baseball number, so that makes me love him even more. Jalen Ramsey gets number five. Avi, Mike White, 14. Jake Bailey, the punter, 16. Deshaun Elliott takes Eric Rowe's uh, position, really, and his number, 21. Miles Gaskin goes back to 37. Malik Reed's going to wear number 47. Does that mean that Andrew Van Geekel has a new number? Uh, David Long, 51. Dan Fihihihine gets number 67. Keon Smith bumps up one number to 77. Eric Sobert's going to wear 82. And Freddie Swain takes Mike Gasicki's number 88. There you go. Let's go ahead and take our first break right there and come back on the other side. I'm going to tell you three areas where the Dolphins improve this offseason that could take them from nine wins to 11, 12, maybe 13, maybe 14. That's next. Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Oh, yeah, it's a Tuesday here. The first episode of the week. Like I mentioned earlier, we had three episodes drop over the weekend. So if you went into Aaron Rodgers' darkness retreat and didn't know what happened over the weekend, go ahead and get back on the playlist there, you silly goose, and check out those previous episodes of the Drive Time Podcast. I wanted to look at the Dolphins' offseason as a whole, and eventually when we get some downtime here, and there ain't no downtime right now, we'll go ahead and take a look at a roster reset as we do at every pivotal point of the offseason and kind of gauge where the Dolphins are post-draft, post-free agency, post 
post post Malone. Um, but I wanted to look at some areas where I think the Dolphins, the reason they were nine and eight last year, despite the fact that I thought they were a much better football team, I wanted to take a look at three areas that they were not good in that I think they got better at this offseason by nature of their moves. Number one is the short yardage game, and I've been talking about this a lot. This is an issue to me of sample size more than anything else because even though Miami was 22 for 55, which was 45.5%, and the only team in the National Football League under 50% in short yardage, is there anybody out there that... Here's how I view quarterbacks. If it's third and seven and you're on defense and you're like, oh man, I don't like our chances, that means that quarterback is good. If you don't like the offense's chances in third and seven, that means the quarterback needs to be replaced. That's kind of how I view that. But if I told you it was third and three or shorter and you can choose to be on the defense or you can choose to have this Dolphins offense with Tua, Tyreek, and Jalen, which one are you taking? Anybody choosing the defense? Would you take the defense if I told you it was third and eight? You probably wouldn't do that then, which means your quarterback's pretty good. It's very hypothetical, you know, is evident by the fact that when Tua was in the game, Miami's third and long conversion rate was 37.8%. Tops were the Chiefs at 45%. And second place was 32.3%, the Bengals. So the Dolphins were comfortably in second place with the Chiefs who ran away at number one. And again, everyone loves Patrick Mahomes. I think most people think he's the best quarterback in the NFL. Everybody loves Joe Burrow. I think most people think he's the second best quarterback in the NFL. Some people think he's the first best quarterback in the NFL. Two is right between those guys. What do you think that, you think that says? Uh, then for posterity, regardless of the quarterback, the Dolphins were number two in third and medium, which is four to six yards at 60% only behind the Buffalo Bills. And many people think Josh Allen is the number three or four best quarterback in the NFL. But man, I just look at the offseason. I think about how the moves jive with improving the few areas that Miami could have performed better in last year. Short yardage, I think perhaps foremost among them. So last year, Tua averaged 9.6 average depth of target. Among starting quarterbacks, that was the most in the NFL. But he only throws the ball five yards down the field. Yeah. No, no, he does. He led the NFL in average depth of target. Josh Allen, Mr. Howitzer himself, was second at 9.4 yards. And what was the complaint from Buffalo fans when the Bills' offense would hit some of the slumps they had last year, like all quarterbacks have, by the way? This thing turns into a rant every time I talk about Tua. Uh, That Allen was pushing the ball too much and not taking what was there for the defense to give him. And frankly, I think that when he does that, he's unstoppable. We saw that week three game, Miami did their damnedest to keep Josh Allen from pushing the ball down the field. And he was doing a very good job of taking the short stuff, but eventually the mistakes piled up and the Dolphins win that game. But we saw the week 15 game where he did a little bit of both, the playmaking, the take the short stuff, and that offense rolled that game, right? But then the playoff game, playoffs, he was pushing the ball, he had an average depth of target of 15 yards in that game, nearly double the previous output And the offense stunk in that game. So people want Josh Allen to take more short stuff and take what's there rather than try to push the ball vertically all game. And to bring this back to the Dolphins and Tua, giving him more options in that short passing game, I think between Saubert and Higgins and A-Chain and Berrios, I think you've made big strides in that department. So it's not like, yeah, of course, throw the ball 300 times to Tyreek and Jalen. I would do the exact same thing. But I don't think that the average depth of target was a reflection of 
The Dolphins desire to push the ball vertically as much as they did, although I think they loved it. I think it was more about the fact that the underneath options just weren't giving them as much as the intermediate and downfield options were. We got almost nothing last year from the tight end position in terms of the passing game, right? Kasicki's numbers plummeted. Smythe didn't catch many balls. Beyond that, there wasn't a lot to go around either. And they also averaged, among all tight end groups in the NFL, the lowest separation in the NFL, which is what we got away from at the receiver position the last couple of years. You know what else will do that? 12 drops by running backs a year ago. That was more than any running back room in all of football. And that's a position that traditionally catches a very high volume of, of passes, you know, 75, 80, 85% of their passes because they're quick check down throws. So I think the Dolphins in short yardage because of Berrios, his ability to win the one-on-one matchups inside, like we talked about with Kyle Krabs a week ago, or Devon A-Chain's ability to separate and play both a pass protector and pass catcher role. Or if a player like Elijah Higgins gets up to speed quickly, the way he can separate both physically and with his route running in short areas. And Eric Sauber in that same way. I think there's a big, big stride to be made there with just those four guys, the expected climb in the running game from year two, but adding four good short area weapons, I think makes a big difference there. My second area of improvement is the takeaways. Vic Fangio's defenses traditionally get takeaways like nobody's business. His last 11 years as a DC or or head coach, his defenses averaged 23.6 takeaways per year. The Dolphins had just 14 last year. That was tied for 40th. And of course, a lot of that production was lost to having so many guys not available for the entire season. Byron Jones out all damn year. Nick Needham out for most of the year. Trill Williams out for the whole damn year. Brandon Jones out for a little more than half of the year. And, you know, guys for stretches of play, notably Xavier Howard playing without two groins. Not really, but he was injured and clearly wasn't right. Uh, and, you know, he's talked about how excited he is to have gotten the rest this offseason and, you know, playing healthy again, hopefully, after battling through those things all year last year. And tip of the cap to him for doing that. The short yardage and lack of takeaways led directly to the worst average starting field position in all of football. Like, think about that. The Dolphins were 11th in scoring last year with the worst starting field position in the National Football League. Not to mention with all those injuries and what they do to your special teams units as key guys, you know, got an elevation playing on offense or defense. So hopefully special teams is much better. It has to be this year. It was, it was really bad last year. And of course, better coverage and more ball hawks will help that too. Better pass rush also tends to lead to better third down defense, right? It gives the ball back to the offense more too, right? And with better field position for an offense that ranked sixth in total offense and 11th in scoring, just by nature of A, better field position, but also B, playing more offensive snaps, you can see that 11th ranked scoring offense climb a lot closer to the number six and hopefully even higher. And when I look at the Dolphins draft class and the positions they took, like, think about this. 2022, third down defense, 24th in the NFL. Passing offense was third. Passing defense was 27th. Rushing offense was 26th. Rushing defense was 8th. It looks to me like they went directly after those weaknesses. Passing defense with your first over, your first pick in the draft. Third down defense, you know, 27th ranked passing defense and 24th ranked third down defense. Let's go get a cornerback. Then your rushing offense ranked 27th. Let's go get a running back. Then from a sustainability standpoint, the second year in the offense, I think, is enough to expect a jump from guys like Tua, Tyreek, Jalen, Teron, Liam, Connor, Rob, Austin, Raheem, El Jefe, and on and on. Finally, more and more Fangio creativity. When I had the privilege of speaking with the coach, he mentioned spending time last year drawing up some new coverages to try out and said he was excited to do that. And he got a big smile on his face. I got a big smile on my face thinking like, this is pretty freaking cool. And I just keep thinking about the versatility of the secondary as it's currently constructed. 
At safety, we know Javon Holland can play everywhere. We know Brandon Jones is a box slot combo in college and has done a little bit of everything here in the pros. Same story with his former college teammate, Deshaun Elliott. But then look at the corners. Cater played inside and out last year. Cam Smith has the ability to do both. Jalen Ramsey has essentially played that star role from the Saban defense where he just dictates matchups and plays where he's needed. That includes inside, outside, tight end, speed receivers, big receivers. It just doesn't matter. Needham plays inside and out. He can play safety in a pinch. I just think you have so many options at your disposal if you're Vic Fangio, and I refuse to believe it was designed that way by accident. And I'm thinking about all the pieces they have on this defense, and I mentioned how before you could have three safeties in your nickel package, right? If you don't want to go to the cornerback position, maybe it's X and Cater before the Jalen trade, before the Camp Smith draft, and maybe you go more heavy at safety. Maybe you bring in Jordan Poyer, and it's Javon Holland, Brandon Jones, and Jordan Poyer. Well, they did that in a different way, through the cornerback position. So now I'm thinking about maybe it's a four-corner nickel package with X and Cam Smith on the outside and Cater and Jalen on the inside and Javon Holland kind of patrolling the whole thing. And those guys, you know what they all do really well? They key the quarterback and they're super instinctive and smart. So if you make a mistake, these guys are jumping these routes and they're making big plays on them. I'm thinking about having guys seven to 10 yards off the ball with eyes on the quarterback named Javon Holland, named Jalen Ramsey, named Xavier Howard, named Cam Smith. Like those guys all are known for making plays from that position. Watch out, man. Watch the hell out. I just think. You've got so many options here. I just keep looking at where this team struggled last year with the pass defense. You think about all those additions there, and not to mention David Long in the second level and what he does to your coverage and blitz packages, but also up front with Chubb being fully healthy. Ogba's back. Malik Reed's here. I think Jalen Phillips gets even better this year. First two picks were DB and running back, so in addition to getting best player available, at least everywhere I've seen, says that Smith fell a lot further than expected, and A-Chain was projected to go about 10 to 15 spots higher, perhaps hence the McDaniel fist pump. They also fit needs. That's the ideal word, right? Ideal world that you live in. You want to be having picks that make the big impact on your roster from a need standpoint and also happen to be some of the best players available. Sounds good to me. Let's go ahead and take a break right here and talk some NFL next on the Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield. We're brought to you by AutoNation. I know I'm a couple days late, but how about Vamos Gatos and Let's Go Heat? Let's Go Heat. We've got Heat Game 2 tonight and Panthers Game 1 in New York and Toronto, respectively. But what a day Sunday was. That was, for me, one of those rare, rare sports days where everything goes your way. I talk about, like, Cougs and Dolphins winning on the same weekend in the NFL and college football. That's fun. But those two wins, I'm not really a hockey guy, but anytime South Florida can take down a Boston team, uh, yeah, I'll take that, please. Additionally, my Seattle Mariners, who suck, erased a four-run deficit to win in extras, and my favorite golfer won the Mexican Open. So again, vamos gatos, let's go heat, goms, go ems, and Tony Finau for the win, baby. All right, back to the NFL. Draft takeaways. Record number of draft day trades, 41 I think was the number, and how about the value gained by the Bears and Cardinals? Bravo to both of those staffs and what they were able to pull off on draft weekend. I thought it was cool that the Cardinals did the exact same thing the Dolphins did back in 2021, going from 3 to 12 to 6. There's a great chart out there from Pro Football Focus where it measures who gained the most value in trades over the weekend, and it's the Cardinals and Bears neck and neck, and they are both three times more 
than the third-place team, which was the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, conversely, the Panthers and Texans, the two teams who made those big trades up the board, had the opposite effect in terms of surplus value. They had the least value, or I should say the most value lost in those trades, going up with both Chicago and Arizona. But that's the cost of getting highly valued prospects, right? The Texans paid a steep price. I wouldn't have paid that much, even though I love Will Anderson. I think he was the best player in the entire draft besides maybe C.J. Stroud. But giving up a future one that might be a top 5, 10 pick, I just don't know about that. So that was generally what I found interesting. I thought the Cardinals killed it. They got great capital next year, including a future one from a team, like I said, hasn't won a lot of games lately. Maybe that changes this year with C.J. Stroud and the changes they've made to Miko Ryans. I think it's going to be a better football team. But can they win right away? If not, the Cardinals might have a couple of top 10, maybe top 5 picks. But Paris Johnson, B.J. Ojolarji, Ojolarji, Ojolari, Garrett Williams, and Michael Wilson, that was their first four players. Those are all four really dang good football players. I thought Buffalo... I hate to say it, got great value with Dalton Kincaid and uh, Osiris Torrance. And then Dorian Dorian Williams, linebacker from Tulane, uh, could also fill some of the snaps left behind by Tremaine Edmonds' departure. I thought the Lions left the draft a much better football team than when they entered it. Gibbs, Campbell, Laporta, Branch is a hell of a first two rounds. And then Hendon Hooker, even if he's only your backup quarterback, that is well worth a third-round draft pick. The Packers, I thought, killed it. Van Ness is a great player for them. Musgrave and Kraft, like that is a that that kind of is almost like Gronk and Aaron Hernandez, you know, sans the extracurricular stuff at the tight end position in terms of getting two very talented young players that spot. And then Carl Brooks later on, we've talked about him a lot in the podcast. Absolutely loved what the Colts did in their draft, getting Anthony Richardson at number four. Finally, the Colts have a quarterback, it seems like. Uh, Julius Brents with the 30, was it the 33rd pick? I don't know when that happened, but they got Julius Brents from Kansas State. He is excellent. I thought Josh Downs is a great pick, a nice little uh, you know security blanket for Richardson early on there. Blake Freeland's a high upside tackle who needs some work, but a good spot to take a flyer on him. And then Adebarre, the defensive lineman from Northwestern, really good value there. Some thought he might go in the first round. He was a fourth round pick for them. They just took good players who most thought would go higher. Darius Rush, Will Mallory to boot on day three. And then, of course, the Eagles. Yeah, <laughs> they just keep scooping up great players. And usually from Georgia, I thought the Swift trade was perfect for them one day after getting Carter and Smith. And they could wind up, like, if DeAndre Swift goes one and done and signs a big contract somewhere, they could get a comp pick that's like a fifth or sixth round pick for him and just basically, you know, a two-year down-the-road trade-up for, for DeAndre Swift in the production he might give them, which I expect will be good. I thought the Giants... Got three impact players with Deontay Banks, John Michael Schmitz, and Jalen Hyatt off the top. I think all three of those guys are going to start for them next year. Steelers got Broderick Jones, my OT1. Joey Porter Jr., my cornerback, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three. I thought him, Christian Gonzalez, and Devon Witherspoon were all really good players. And then Keanu Benton. That might be the best one, two, three picks of anybody in the entire draft. And then they got Darnell Washington who I wanted, but I'm happy with what we got. Also, really like, really like the Seahawks and Titans and Bucks classes. What a fun weekend, man. Always a fun time of year. So that's the draft, and I want to end the episode this way. Later on at some point, I want to go through and rank every position group of every team and tell you where I've got the fins on those rankings, but I want to sort of tease that with this. My top 10 rosters in the NFL post-2023 draft, and they are this. Get ready to weep, Jets fans. Number 10, Lions. Get a big-time quarterback, and they shoot way up this list, but they are great in the trenches. I love the skill spots. This is this low because I think DB and quarterback are still a little bit dubious, uh, but Chauncey Gardner-Johnson getting there helps that DB group a lot. I just think he's going to mask a lot of issues. 
That's why they crack the top 10 over my number 11 team, which I'll tell you about here in just a second. The Dallas Cowboys are nine, loaded defense at all three levels. Offensive line has taken some hits in recent years. They have a proven quarterback, not as good as the rest on this list, most likely at the skill spots, but they're pretty good there too. I think CeeDee Lamb's a great player. Uh, the Bengals, number eight, losing the two safeties in Von Bell and Jesse Bates, for me, knocked them a few spots. Those guys kind of drove that defense from the back with Lou Anarumo. We'll see what Daxon Hill can do for them in the, in the replacement of uh, those guys the, this the second-year player from Michigan. I'm still concerned about some spots on the offensive line and the second level of defense, but Joe Burrow in that passing game puts him up here pretty easily. The Ravens, number seven, they are annually here. Would have been in this position a year ago had Lamar not gotten hurt. They still made the playoffs, but they're a great team every year, especially when their quarterback is right, and he's finally paid, so now we can put that to rest. The uh, 49ers coming at sixth. This despite me having no confidence at the quarterback position they have this year. I'm not a crazy fan of Brock Purdy's game. He played really well last year, but I think that was more system-driven. We'll see what happens with Trey Lance. I mean, who the heck knows? And then Sam Darnold. Just tells you how good they are everywhere else, though. Getting Javon Hargrave on that defensive line is stupid, man. So stupid. Uh, Number five is the Chargers. Tons of injuries last year coming back, but will they ever stay healthy? If they do, they are loaded. I have the Bills at number four. Offensive line was addressed in free agency in the draft in a very strong way. I think they need more at the skill spots. We'll see if they wind up getting DeAndre Hopkins or not. That DB depth was challenged a year ago, but make no mistake, they did not fall off a cliff, and having that quarterback helps big time too. He's still really good, man. Uh, number three is the Chiefs. A, a, a good quarterback and offensive line can carry them to this spot, and that's what they did. The skills are fine. Defense is fine, too. But they are stout at the important positions like rush, pass rushing, uh, pretty good cornerback play, offensive line, and quarterback, all very, very good. Number two. Miami has the Dolphins, the number two roster in the NFL for me. Uh, go, go talk to a wall if you disagree. I'm biased, whatever. You can say whatever you want, but find me a team with fewer weaknesses and better key position groups. Like, yeah, there's some questions on the offensive line. We'll see about the tight end position. But other than that, what do you got for me? What do you got for me, guys? Th- that's it. There's only one team to me that has a better roster with loaded receivers, loaded pass rushers, a very good quarterback, and all of a sudden a loaded secondary. To me, it's the Philadelphia Eagles. Just outside this list are the New York Jets. And look, if we base our opinions on 2022, they're not good at quarterback. Wasn't good last year, but that's not always how it works. I expect Rodgers to be better this year. We will see, but certainly you can see the power dynamic here between the AFC and NFC. If Rodgers is old Rodgers, then I'll put the Jets in the top 10, but I'm not buying it until I see it. In the meantime, that's going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank Podcast with Seth and Juice. Check out the YouTube channel for Dolphins Today, media availabilities, and much, much more. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline and Cameron, daddy. He's coming home.